So there is kind of a normal routine at my house at dinner time. Uh, we gather around the table to eat, and sometimes that means uh, the three of us, um, Ash and Levi and myself, and then the other part of the family is there more than the three. But regardless if it's three or the full six, the, you, the routine normally goes like this. We look at Levi and say, did you wash your hands? And most of the time, his response is no. And so he leaves the table and goes and washes his hands, and then he comes back to the table. And the follow-up question is, did you use soap? And most often the answer is no, which at point we say, let it go. Um, washing your hands before you eat is a good idea, especially if you are a little boy or a grown man. Reason is, for the male species, for, one, for whatever reason, you never know where those hands have been, right? And so... Wash them. Um, little boys pick up all kinds of things. They are, again, part of being the male species. Men, little boys are, we'll just say, scratchers by nature. So you never know where hands have been, what they've been doing, and so wash your hands before you come to the table. As a matter of fact, we're going to give away a prize. Uh, wives, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you permission to do this. Um, how many of you wives can look at your husbands, your sons, whoever, whatever male species is sitting with you, um, and look at their hands, and they have some type of dirt or grease or something under their fingernails right now. Go ahead, take a look. Hold your hand up if your male counterpart has some level of grease or something under their hands right now. Anyone? Okay, I see those hands. All right, wash your hands before you eat. That just means you're a worker, right? I get it. My hands are a little dirty. I worked outside. They have some calluses at least. Right? These, wash your hands before you eat. These are hygiene issues, particularly for boys. That's what we just read in the text. Pharisees are all angry because the disciples of Jesus did not wash their hands. Now, the follow-up question is, what about washing your, if we're reading the text, what about washing your cups and your pots and your copper vessels? And particularly, make sure that you wash your dining couch. I don't know what the dining couch is. Some of you are like, well, that's where we eat supper every night is on the dining couch, right? Well, just make, yeah, that's okay, I guess, if that's your family routine. Just make sure you wash it before you flop down. We're not allowed to eat dinner on the couch at my house because my wife decided it's a great idea to buy a light-colored couch um, when you have multiple people in, in the house because those will not get dirty, all right? And so we're, not, we're forbidden from eating on the couch in my house, but the dining couch. In our text today, a group of annoyed Pharisees and scribes are after Jesus again. Uh, we see this repeatedly. This time, Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders differ on two primary areas in our text. One, what is uncleanness all about? And two, this idea of the tradition of the elders. And we'll dive into that in just a moment. So let's unpack these two kind of points of contention in the text, and then we'll discuss uh, what in the world they have to do with our lives today. So let's jump back to the uh, first five verses of Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him uh, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, which is about 90 miles away, 
They saw that some of his disciples ate with unwashed hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. And then notice, starting at verse 3, Mark puts this little parenthesis, probably in your English translation, verses 3 and 4, uh, which is an explanation of what's going on. Uh, Mark's writing to primarily a non-Jewish audience, so he gives us this little parenthesis here. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding, and here's a phrase, to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and the dreaded dining couch. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And so this group of Pharisees and scribes, they travel this basically 90 miles from Jerusalem for one purpose, to interrogate Jesus. The religious leaders, take note of this, the religious leaders have been and will continue to be the primary opposition to Jesus, even all the way to his death. That statement alone should cause any of us who label ourselves religious at any level to pause and think and stop. That it was the religious leaders that would be the primary opposition to Jesus and his ministry on earth all the way to the point of his death. This particular conflict centers on the failure of the disciples to wash their hands before eating. Now what's going on here? Is this a hygiene issue? Are they, dis- are they concerned about hygiene? Are they concerned about where the disciples, the hands of the disciples have been? Like what's going on here? Or is there something else going on? There's something else going on. Again, Mark is writing to this kind of non-Jewish audience, most likely Roman Gentiles in the Roman Empire. And so this parenthesis he explains, he gives us some insight, this kind of explanatory parenthesis regarding this idea of the tradition of the elders. Let me break that down for you. The tradition of the elders were regulations that developed over time that were above and beyond the actual commands of God. For example, in this instance, according to the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, according to the Torah, only priests were required to wash their hands before entering the tabernacle. This is Leviticus 22. The only other instance we see in the Torah, the washing of the hands was only prescribed if someone touched a, some type of bodily discharge. This is Leviticus chapter 15. And again, these are good instances to wash your hands before eating. But those were the spelled out moments in the Torah where this idea of washing your hands was a command of God. But as Jewish interaction with Gentiles increased, Jewish interaction with Gentile culture, as this increased, the protocol concerning ritual cleanliness, washing your hands, took on new meaning. It took on new meaning in the effort to maintain Jewish purity. Follow me here. Okay, let me nerd out for a second. Over time, stricter rules 
Stricter regulations were added to God's commands to maintain this kind of definable, observable separation and distinction from non-Jews. This kind of oral tradition became known as the tradition of the elders. These oral traditions, let me explain to you, they were kind of this one-step removed buffer. Uh, matter of fact, the, some of the early Jewish writings called the Mishnah that explained a lot of the oral traditions uh, referred to these oral traditions as a fence. A fence that was created that was intending to protect the Jews from violating God's commands. But what eventually happened, as it does every time, eventually adherence to these well-intended additions to the law became equal to the law. In some cases, they became superior to the law. That it was more important to adhere to the fence, to the regulations, to the rules, than it was to the law itself. Let me put this in a practical way we can understand. If this podium represents God's law, these are the do's and the don'ts, the things that would violate God's law and be considered sin. What the oral traditions did, the tradition of the elders is, is to say, well, if this podium represents God's law and violation of this law is wrong or sinful, then we need to create some parameters to keep us from getting to the podium. And so let's build a fence that's the size of this rug up here. And we'll build a fence the size of this rug. And that way, if I stay outside the fence, I'm about to go off camera, I know, don't worry about it. Um, if, if I stay outside of this fence, then that keeps me from breaking the law. But soon the fence became equal to the law itself. And so once this fence becomes equal to the law itself, I've got to do something else. So I've got to create another fence that says to keep me from breaking this law, to keep me from breaking that law, I have to create something else that's going to keep me even further away. And so as time progressed, became more buffers, more fences, more regulations, more traditions that perverted the law itself. Because what became most important was the fence. What became most important was the buffer. And so when the Pharisees said to Jesus, your disciples are not washing their hands, what they're talking about is a fence that's very far removed from the law of God. But this became what was most important. It trumped the law itself. The tradition of the elders. So in this religious structure of the Pharisees violating one of these oral traditions was the equivalent of breaking God's original command. And so holiness and righteousness and obedience began to be defined by the fence, by the fences, by the buffers. That's what it meant to be holy, that if I am to take a step inside the fence, then I've, I'm, I'm no longer a holy person, I'm a defiled person, even though the command is way over here. The buffer, the tradition of the elders, became more important than the law itself. Here's the logic. Because the law is too ambiguous, the law doesn't give detailed instructions for living out the purity laws in everyday life, the oral traditions prescribed the details. 
In other words, the tradition of the elders said, here's what's considered clean and unclean. The law's not specific enough. And so we have to be more specific. Here's what it means to be clean. Here's what it means to be holy. Here's what it means to be living in obedience. And so if you violate these things, even though the command is way over here, then you're no longer a clean person. You're no longer a holy person. You're no longer a righteous person. And soon the tradition of the elder superseded the law itself. God is pleased when we keep these additional rules and regulations, right? And when we abstain from certain behaviors, and the tradition of the elders began to categorize people into holy and unclean, obedient, disobedient, pure and impure, and soon the tradition of the elders categorized people over non-essential issues. In this case, the disciples are considered defiled because they failed to go through one of these added hand-washing routines with the idea of protecting them from purity. Think about where the disciples have been. They have been in contact with people that were considered unclean by these oral traditions. Gentiles, the sick, lepers, commoners. They've been interacting with these people. And so the Pharisees in their minds think, well, they've got to go through this routine of making themselves pure before they can eat. Why, Jesus, are your disciples not following our traditions? They are ceremonially unclean. Well, as you can imagine, Jesus has something to say about this. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, well, this word translated well has a tone of sarcasm about it. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So you can see the language Jesus uses is this fence language. He sarcastically refers to the Pharisees as hypocrites. Anybody ever heard religious people referred to as hypocrites? This is a pretty common accusation and an accurate one most of the time, right? Jesus uses this word hypocrites to say a word that was taken from Greek theater, meaning a uh, it's a term for playing a part, for wearing a mask, for impersonating someone, right? It's an actor or an actress, either on the stage or on a movie or on a TV series. They're playing a part. They're putting on a role. It's not who they really are. They're just pretending to be someone else. That's a, a theater word, and Jesus uses this language. He uses this word. By the way, the only group in all of the Gospels that Jesus uses this word concerning are religious people. The only ones Jesus ever calls a hypocrite are the religious elite. And he says, you're putting on a mask, you're impersonating. Very common, again, to hear the religious referred to as mask wearers, as hypocrites. We know what's really going on in your life. You're a hypocrite. We sing a song here at City Church that Jesus came to die for hypocrites, even one like me. He came to die for Pharisees, even one like me. Jesus exposes their hypocrisy by quoting Isaiah 
we read it in our call to worship, who prophesied of a people who would express these lofty and grand sentiments about God, but Jesus says, whose heart, whose heart is distant from God. And because their heart is removed from God, their worship is in vain. Their teachings are human-centered commands. It's idolatry, Jesus says. Replacing the divine with the human. And there is a strict warning built into this text to us. That there is this idea that our words can be in vain because of where our heart is. This idea of, of, of idolatry, the idea of the passage in Isaiah, is that the loyalty of God's people is in the wrong place. That their loyalty is to the fences and the regulations and the rules that they have created and not to God Himself. Now, important to understand here. The issue here is not a question of sincerity. The issue is not a question of dedication. The Pharisees were completely dedicated to the oral traditions. They were all in. They checked all the right boxes. And yet Jesus insists they nullify, they make void God's commands in favor of their own tradition. Jesus uses a specific example here. I'm not going to get into the fine details of the example he uses here. We'll just read through it. Uh, verse 10, Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. That's a, a key word in understanding what this little parable is. That is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus, making void the word of God by your own tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So Jesus uses a, an example here that's called Corbin. Um, without getting into a lot of details, that'll put you to sleep. Um, Co Corbin is basically kind of a legal loophole um, in the Jewish law um, that was often used or employed by, by Jews that allowed them to kind of bypass specific laws. In the case that Jesus is talking about here, um, in Jewish culture, um, mothers and fathers as part of honoring them the children would be financially responsible for the father and mother all the way to the time of their death some of you grandparents are like I'm all in with that right they're financially responsible for me from here on out uh, but the legal lo loophole the 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 Corbin here was that there were ways in the Jewish law to get around that to say this part of my money is Corbin. It's given to God, and therefore I don't have to use it to take care of mom and dad. Right? So they were getting out of God's law. And Jesus calls them out on it. He says, you're making void, you're nullifying the command of God with your own human-made traditions. You're using a legal loophole to get around what God has clearly taught. Verse 14. This perversion continues. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me. Again, this idea of you have ears to hear. Listen. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. 
but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And according to what English translation you have, there may also be here the statement, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, the emphasis here. Um, Listen and understand. The perversion of God's word through these oral traditions is met with a sharp and stern rebuke by Jesus. Jesus says, listen to me. Understand what I'm teaching. Opening your ears to hear, your eyes to see. And he flips the emphasis on them. He flips the emphasis and says, what defiles a person is what is on the inside. Not not what is on the outside. The uncleanness and impurity are heart issues. Not violations of your human created traditions. Even, listen, even if those traditions are well intended. Flips the emphasis. And then he takes it to a deeper level with the disciples in the house. We read in verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. This is common routine now. We've seen in Mark's gospel. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, and here's another parenthesis. Remember Mark's writing to uh, Roman, to Rome, Gentile Romans, not uh, a Jewish audience primarily. So he puts another parenthesis here. He declared all foods clean. That was important in the conversation happening in the first century. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. So this conversation continues in the house with his disciples who once again, as we've seen repeatedly in Mark's gospel, they fail to understand what Jesus is teaching. And what Jesus is most concerned about and what is the true purpose of God's law in the Old Old Testament covenant, what is the true purpose of the law, what Jesus is most concerned about has to do with our heart. Our heart who we are. The parable Jesus uses here is he says, look, all food ends up in the same place. And that means exactly what you think it means. It ends up in the latrine. If we're going to be proper here, it ends up in the privy. Or if like what happened with my son, do not bring this up to him. This is my younger son. Are you going to shut it down? That's just blurted out. I can't believe you're telling this. I'll keep it clean. I, what happened to Levi this week is he was at his grandparents' house, and he didn't make it to the privy, okay? He, he, um, he, it was, we'll use the biblical language, is expelled before he arrived at the latrine. And there's some reasons why he couldn't get the door open. He's trying to get a swimsuit off, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of context here. But it expelled, just not where we hoped it would expel. So that's what Jesus is saying here. Look, food ends up in the same place. It all ends up in the same place. It's not about, don't miss the emphasis here, it's not about the food. If you make it about the food, if you make it about the rules, if you make it about the regulations, you miss the point. Remember, Mark's writing this gospel to first century believers. If you read the story of how the church unfolds, 
you remember that a lot of the conversation in the very early days of the church was around kosher foods and dietary regulations. This was a heavy and heated discussion because dietary restrictions were an essential part of the Jewish tradition and Jesus comes along and flips the whole thing on its head. And that's why Mark says here, all food is considered clean. I mean, this is just so much flashback into the New Testament. Paul's vi- or Peter's vision in Acts 10, where Cornelius the Gentiles like come and share the gospel, and Peter sees this giant uh, sheet that's filled with all kinds of good stuff, like bacon, right? And, and God says, eat. Peter's like, I can't eat, that's unclean food. And what does Jesus say? What I declare clean, don't you dare call it common. This is all over the New Testament. Paul addresses this again and again. Romans 14, 14, he he uses this very language. Who are we to call what is clean unclean? God has made it clean. One of my favorite stories in in the development of the early church is the two bigwigs, Peter and Paul, they have like a heavyweight throwdown over this issue. Like they go after each other. Paul says to Peter, like the dude that was with Jesus everywhere, right? Inner circle Peter, Paul's like, you're distorting the gospel over food. Like they're going after each other. The very first church council in Acts 15, they gather everybody together to try to figure this thing out. What's kosher and what's not? What's acceptable and what's not? This was a big issue in the early church. And the point of emphasis that Jesus is making here is we have a tendency to focus on the external over the internal. And listen, it is ingrained in who you are. Even as followers of Jesus. Let me put it as simply as I know how. Rules are simply easier. Rules are easier. It's easier to measure and judge and control the external. Most religions are about, including Christianity, distorted version of Christianity, most religions are about keeping a set of rules. Conforming to certain rules and regulations and metrics. All of us have our own oral traditions. We've all built our own fences, our own buffers to kind of keep us from perverting God's original law. But what Jesus makes clear in this text is, I'm after your heart. I'm after your heart. It's why the law was given from the beginning. And it's what Jesus brings us back to again and again. Even this catalog of sins that Jesus refers to in this text are heart matters. Let me be crystal clear. When we make following Jesus about rules, even well-intended rules, we run the risk of nullifying the Word of God. Of canceling out grace the purpose of scripture is not to give us a list of rules to follow the purpose of God's word is to capture our hearts it's about relationship relationship we align our lives with the text with the scriptures not so that God will be pleased with our behavior 
but so that our hearts are being transformed by the gospel. It is inside out living, not outside in living. Rules will not change your heart. Inside out living. We saw it in recent weeks, upside down living. Now this idea is so important in our current cultural climate. Let me break it down for you in a couple of ways. We are constantly being pulled toward external. We are constantly being pulled toward image. What image are we creating? We are constantly being pulled toward persona. What persona do people have of me? In our social media-driven culture, we are constantly being driven toward appearance and likes and approval. What we drive and where we live and where we vacation and what we wear and who we're hanging out with. And our current cultural climate feeds it. It feeds it. It feeds it in ways in which we're not even aware of what's happening behind the scenes. Even our social media feeds is being fed by this idea. And, and let me pause here to say, for everyone who refuses to be a part of the social media frenzy, right? I know who you are. You're all like, I don't have one of those smartphones. I've still got the flip phone that's bigger than any home phone you ever owned. You walk around that thing, it looks like you got a cinder block in your pocket, right? I know who you are. You're like, I'm a flip phone person. I don't even own a smartphone. Facebook? I don't even have a Facebook account, right? I know. I know who you are. Like, don't think for a second that you're exempt from this. We are constantly being dragged toward measuring our acceptance before God in some external category, right? Even the idea itself of like, I'm not a part of that, can be a measuring rod for I'm better than all those people who are. We are constantly being dragged toward measuring things, measuring acceptance in this case before God by some external means. Now, let me be very um, transparent with you for a moment. And I don't say these things lightly. Um, I grew up in a very behavior-driven religious environment um, where spirituality was measured primarily by what we did or did not do or wear or drink or listen to or watch or read or participate in or who you hung out with, right? Um, our circles were clearly defined parameters for who was in, who was out. Uh, some of you grew up in these type of environments. Some of you um, grew up in the same type of environments I did. Some of you did not. Uh, but either way, we have our traditions and whatever your tradition is. Uh, it was very important to listen to the, to read the right books and listen to the right preachers and read from the right Bible translation and have the right parenting methods and right political candidate, political party, uh, right vocational choices, right wardrobe. These were all external metrics 
that were used to kind of define spirituality or holiness or acceptance, right? To check the right boxes. And, and many of these traditions started with what appears to be good intentions. If you avoid this, right? If you avoid this, then you'll never get here. But soon the this became equal to the command. And then the this was not good enough, so there had to be another this and another this. Good intentions to keep from this, but when the this replaces the command, right, we fall into the trap that Jesus is talking about here, the fence. I've even heard the fence language used in a positive way in this very idea. But as in Jesus' day, the this was often beyond what Scripture taught. And human-created preferences and standards became the benchmark for holiness and obedience. And in this process, the Word of God often becomes nullified. Now, if you grew up in circles similar to mine, we claim to believe the Bible, but I don't always feel like we trusted the Bible. The scriptures needed help, right? We needed to define God's commands with do's and don'ts. And eventually the practices, the behaviors, the traditions superseded. They invalidated the text. And this is natural, a natural progression because traditions are measurable. They're visible. Now again, your experience may be different than mine. Many of yours is. My experience was this kind of brand of toxic fundamentalism. That may not be your story, but this same danger exists in every religious circle because we are naturally drawn toward defining acceptance by the external. So no matter what type of church tradition in which you, that you grew up in or if you did not grow up in church at all, you still have your set of oral, oral traditions that are like this is what it means to be acceptable or unacceptable or who's in or who's out. These are the metrics that are visible and external that can be measured. Over years of unpacking this type of legalism in my life, God has redefined and reshaped my beliefs and practices with the beauty of the gospel of grace now again i'm being honest with you i still wrestle struggle wrestle regularly with a tendency to define holiness by my external criteria i still wrestle with that the journey of grace is ongoing isn't it it's ongoing because our default button is some type of legalism our default button is some type of measuring, some type of here's who's in and here's who's out and based on these criteria, who's acceptable and who's not. That's our default button. It's easier. Rules are easier. This person's following the rules. This person's not. That's our default button. And so we constantly are drawn back into the gospel of grace to remind us again and again that what he has done is enough and that we rest in what he has done and here is the key question of this entire text and our entire message today here is what it's all about that it flows from the inside here's the key question has jesus captured my heart 
has Jesus captured my heart? That's where this text is taking us. Has Jesus captured your heart? Has the gospel captured my heart? Like, consider the sins that Jesus mentions here. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus says these evil things come from within. And those are the things that defile a person from the inside out. Now here's what I would say about that. The opposite is also true. That when the gospel of grace transforms our hearts, what flows from the inside, what flows from the inside out is the opposite of everything Jesus talks about here. What flows from the inside is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control flows out of a heart being transformed by the gospel. What flows from within, outside, inside out, is a love for God, a love for our neighbors, our love for each other, a love for the family of faith. These are things that flow from the inside out as the gospel of grace does its work. What flows from the inside out is tenderness and compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness and humility and what we see displayed by Jesus again and again and again in everyday life. It's why Jesus doesn't just say, here's a list, go keep this list and you'll be okay. What Jesus talks about is internal heart transformation that displays itself outwardly. Like it's difficult to measure humility, isn't it? It's difficult to measure forgiveness. It's difficult to measure compassion and love and mercy and grace. These are things you can't just put a tagline on and check a box. They are heart transformation issues that the gospel of grace is doing its work and it flows from the inside out. That's why the question from our text is so important. Has Jesus captured my heart? Has he captured my heart? Because if the gospel captures your heart, what flows out of your heart is not some checklist that allows people to measure your spirituality. What flows from your heart are the fruit of the Spirit, the areas of life that God pinpoints as humility and compassion and mercy and grace and forgiveness. These are the byproducts of heart transformation. I'm almost done here. It's very telling that this kind of scrupulous list of purity laws that were developed and practiced by these well-intended religious leaders. So this, this fence, right? These well-intended rules and regulations. It's very telling that the tradition of the elders incriminates Jesus and his disciples. I mean, think about it. Already in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been with lepers and tax collectors and Gentiles and the sick with this menstruating woman with corpses. Like each of these incidents in the first six chapters of Mark, that's just in Mark 1 through 6. In each of these instances, it violates some type of oral 
tradition that had been created. That Jesus would have been considered unclean and defiled by the most religious people of his day. What? And let's not pretend that the same would not be true today if Jesus were around. I'm guessing the practices and the company that Jesus kept if he walked the earth today would cause us to squirm a little bit, to raise our eyebrows and to gossip among ourselves, just like it did the religious people of his day. I mean, Jesus was labeled a glutton, a drunk, a friend of sinners. These are accusations made against Jesus based on how he lived his life and the people to whom he ministered. And yet Jesus never sinned. He was absolutely pure. He was completely holy while standing in direct opposition to the religious of his day, the tradition of the elders. So we ask ourselves, has Jesus captured my heart? Has he captured my heart? Am I more concerned about the unclean hands of others or my own heart? Am I more concerned about the fences and buffers that others have violated or am I more concerned about what's going on in my heart? See, I don't want Jesus to say about Devon and say about City Church what he said about the religious of that day. This people honors me with their lips. They sing the right songs. They say the right things. They express the right language. They appear religious. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How's our heart. Are we paying lip service to Jesus while our hearts are far from God?